Well, kind of in transition as we go to God's word, we're going to be in Revelation 15 and 16. Two chapters today? You're crazy. I know. Here we go. Before we go there, uh, let me take five and uh, let me have us review our five pictures uh, to kind of set our minds from singing before the throne. Let's kind of transition our minds to studying before the throne. And uh, five pictures plus one we added last Sunday. Picture number one is up on the screen. Uh, Our series is about Jesus Christ revealed. That's what it is about. He is the site, he is the source and the subject of the book of Revelation. He is the revealer and the revealee. And uh, we are seeking to learn more about him. Picture number two, we are doing this in a manner like a bus tour together. Uh, We're not on an airplane flying over and doing a 30,000 foot altitude. We are more in a bus tour, kind of a first timer, sight by sight, moving along in that kind of a fashion of it all. And we're doing it together. And I trust having a blast together and as well as learning together. Picture number three, framework lenses. I've asked that all of us as tour guests on this bus tour together that we take off some of our theological framework lenses. Boy, Doug, that's very risky. Uh, uh, Actually, not really, because we are diving into God's word to allow God's word to shape our framework of theology and not our preferred theology to shape scripture. And and so it's okay, it's okay. It's a a little bit risky, but but it's okay. We're, We're going there to see what God has to say and allow his word to frame us in the process of it. Uh, Picture number four, airplane components laid out. We are presently on this site-by-site tour laying out the pieces of revelation. I want to say this again. We are not in assembly mode. We are laying it out. Assembly mode's later, but first we're just trying to grab a hold of the book, get what's moving on about it. Uh, We're in laying out the pieces mode. Picture number five, Picasso's painting, Guernica. Uh, Crazy imagery in this painting. It's just a physical visual reminder that we are not going into Revelation with all of its cool, crazy imagery, and we are not ones who go in and define all of the imagery for what we think that it means. Frankly, it's not about what I think, and it's not even about what you think. It's ultimately about what did the painter intend for the meaning of those images to be, and that's what we're trying to seek out and pull out of that. Uh, Basically, Revelation is not a book of imagery that is open for interpretation. It's all about what God says. And we want to understand what he means in that as best we can. Picture number six from last week uh, added this last Sunday. A sea revelation in light of the entirety of redemption history. If you just see the book as a book on its own and lose track of the whole of, uh, of, of, of the redemptive history reality, you lose sight of what's really going on. And, and just quickly, since I have a minute and a half left, the game clock of redemptive history started in Genesis 3 at what we call the fall. Two teams are on the field. Uh, we talked about them last Sunday, the dragons and, and the lion lambs, let's call them. There are only two teams on the field, only two. The dragon's coach is called the dragon. That's his nickname. They only have one coach, but he has a host of some of the worst assistant coaches ever on the planet. 
On the other side of the field, on the Lion Lambs team, they have a triad of coaches. They are amazing. They know the game unlike any other ever. And they have a whole host of assistant coaches that are amazing assistant coaches. And they love serving this team. And they love the triad of coaches beyond belief. In the stadium, seats are filled with all of those that have come before and are now theologically in the intermediate state of the seats. The first half of the game, let's call it comprised of Old Testament history. Uh, we get through Old Testament history, we get into the halftime. It's the 400 years of the intertestament period between the Old and the, the New Testaments. Then the second half starts, and it begins with a bang because, to everyone's surprise, the, the second coach on the triad padded up and comes out onto the field to play on the field. And he plays amazingly, but soon into the second half, all of a sudden he is dealt a killer blow. And he's out for what's like three days. And he's laid out thinking he's actually dead. They go to cart him off the field and before they get to the sidelines, he raises from the dead. And he goes over to the sidelines in the exact place where he came from, full authority, full magni uh, magnitude, full uh, uh, everything that he was, except he happens to have some scars on him now, carrying the reality of redemptive history. We move to the fourth quarter. Two-minute warning sounds. The feel on the field is that the Dragons are on a march to win the game. All the players are over on each of their sidelines. They never sit down because it's on the field playing. And they're looking and hearing their coaches. And, and we peer into this, this timeout at the two-minute warning. And we see all of the lion lambs over along the sidelines. And they're all looking into the second person coach of the triad as he's talking with them. And he's looking back to them and, and imagine this as though he is telling them in, those two, in that timeout, two minute timeout period, he is telling them the book of Revelation. And he's walking them through and he's reminding them that he's got it. He's reminding them that there's a game plan. He's reminding them it's all okay. And yet you look in some of the players' eyes and some of them are defeated, some of them are beat up, and some of them are worn out. But when they look back into the Savior's eyes, not under the other players' eyes, but into the Savior's eyes, not over onto the other team's sideline, but into the Savior's eyes. Endure in faith. Because he's got it. Hey, he's got it. And he's going to win. Don't give up. Don't get distracted. Don't be deceived. Finish the war strong. Know that. And so, Lord, it's right in that place that we enter your words. Reminding us of who you are ultimately. And you've got it. And yet you know we are feeble players. 
But we keep looking into your eyes, Lord. You got it. In the coach player's name we pray. Amen. Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 15, please. Revelation 15. We're going to go through uh, what is some of the most heavy, intense uh, text of Scripture. Here we go. It starts with chapter 15. Chapter 15 is really preparing us for chapter 16. It's setting some more foundation here. We're about to enter the seven bowls. Let me just go verse by verse. Every word matters. Here we go. Chapter 15, first three words, John says, Then I saw... A reminder, then I saw, John is writing information, John is not making up the information. John is writing what he sees, that's exactly what he was told in Revelation chapter 1. This is not a human source, this is God sourced. And he is the one who is writing it, then I saw, and then I saw, it says, another sign in heaven, another sign. Well, uh, what are the other signs prior to that? Well, you go back to chapter 12, verse 1, that it says there was a great sign in heaven. Chapter 12 was telling about the war, and the great sign in heaven was a woman, uh, a woman clothed with the sun, as it was talking about. That was the first sign, if you will. Then, actually, a couple verses later in chapter 12, sign number two, another sign in heaven, and that was a great red dragon. What was that sign? And we are, uh, uh, we're not at sign number three, but, but here we go, sign number three, uh, another sign. It, it's about to come. Then I saw another sign in heaven. What is it? And he goes on. It's a great and amazing sign. Uh, by the way, get ready. Because this is an awesome and a stunning thing. This isn't like a, boy, this is kind of boring. Heard this before. Wah, wah, wah. No, no, no. This is an amazing and a stunning sign that's about to come up. It's great. It's awesome. Take a look at this. Buckle your seatbelts. Here we go. And here it is. Seven angels with seven plagues. Plagues. The, the, the word for plagues, it, it literally is, it's, it's a blow, it's a wound. Now, we think of plague, and understandably so, we think of a health plague thing like, oh, I got the plague <laughs> deal. But, but that does, the word doesn't necessarily mean physical. It actually means more holistically here. It, it's the seven angels have seven blows. Okay, that, that's the idea that's really behind this and coming out of it. Seven powerful, deadly blows. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven blows. And notice which are the last. For with them, the wrath of God is finished. Very important statement. Very important not only is it telling what this is about, this is about the wrath of God, but it's also telling about kind of the timing of it. This is the last and, and, and the finishing of in this. Uh, we're in laying out the pieces mode, right? We're not in assembly mode, but, but I do need to make a, a note here because when we get to assembly mode, I think this verse is really, really important in understanding that the main center of the book of Revelation has these seven seals and seven trumpets and seven bowls, and how do they fit? And, and here in the text, I think in the natural reading of it, it says these are the last 
the last. Now, I say that because some view in the assembly mode when we get to another day, uh, some really, really good people, okay, I, I, really good theologians, uh, see Revelation with these seals and trumpets and, and, and bulls as running parallel together. As they're, they're three repetitions of the same thing, maybe from different angles, different aspects of them. So uh, seal number one is the same as, seal, as trumpet number one, as bowl number one, and so on and so forth, and, and view it more that way. Uh, uh, others view it as th- that they are, are movement. Uh, the, the, you have the seals that go into the trumpets that go into the bowls, and they're more sequential or chronological through it. And, and we want the text to shape our understanding and not a, a, a framework to force the text. And so I think the real question here is, what's the natural reading of the text? And I'm just going to say my answer to the natural reading of the text is that these are sequential, that these are chronological, that these are moving, not, rep, not parallel repetitions of. These are the last It's not the last repeating of, but this is the last set of that are going on here. There are seven seals that lead into seven trumpets and and seven bowls. And uh, good people disagree, but just so you know, a little assembly mode there. Let's step back in. Note uh, the sign. Uh, These seven angels with seven plague blows are, are bringing the, it says, the wrath of God. That sounds serious, doesn't it? By the way, uh, note this in in your Bibles. Uh, The wrath of God is actually all around these chapters here. You look at verse chapter 14, verse 10, and and it shows here, uh, and he also will drink the wine of God's wrath. And then verse 19 of chapter 14, at the very end of it, and the great wine press of the wrath of God. And then here in verse 1, it has it. And <clears throat> excuse me, verse 7, it says, uh, full of the wrath of God. And then chapter 16, verse 1, at the end of that, seven bulls of the wrath of God. And then verse 19, chapter 16, it says, the fury of his wrath. But, but, but God is love. Not wrath. So if that's the stated case, then love and wrath cannot fit together. Grace and punishment do not work together. Justice and mercy are opposing opposites if that's the case. And parents, I would just ask you to consider, uh, should disobedience of of a child uh, receive a fitting discipline? I think all parents would say yes. Why do you do that? Because you love them. Teachers, listen, in a classroom, I know a lot of this opportunity is being taken away, but listen, teachers in a class need to keep order, and correction comes in. Why? Because you love the class. Police officers, lawyers, judges, law-abiding citizens, shouldn't crime receive a fitting punishment? It should, and I think we would all agree with that. And doesn't punishment that fits the crime ultimately come from a core place of loving people? We love this society, and so there are certain things that are set that know that's wrong, and and that deserves a, a wrath that's fitting the crime. 
yet rightful wrath. We're not about the wrong use of wrath, correct? No, we don't want that. No, 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 we, we don't want a crime. You know, I stole a pack of gum, death chair, right? We would all be dead. <laughs> but, but that doesn't fit together. We don't like that. And, and punishment that fits the crime it comes out of a place of love. It, it comes from a holy place, a just place. And here's the thing, when we see God in the scripture, so often we are, even if we grab a hold of the wrath of God, there's a thing within us that is just like, how does love and wrath fit? But we live it every day. Here's our problem, I think. We don't see the magnitude of our sin crime. And so we think that the punishment, the wrath that a perfect, holy, just, righteous, all-knowing God lays out, when we see what that wrath is, we go, that is not fitting to the crime. We think that God's wrath then, therefore, is somehow unfair and excessive punishment for our sin crime. And we think that God has it wrong. But the fact is, we have it wrong. We see our sin like traffic tickets. We see traffic ticket sin. We don't see sin how God sees it. Listen, friends. So I've gone through this, I'll just lead with this. His punishment perfectly fits the crime. And we need to understand the magnitude of the crime. We have the problem. He doesn't. He sees it rightly. We struggle to see it rightly. Let's go through the text and watch, I think, our souls wrestle with this. I will tell you all week long, my legs and my arms have been numb whenever I've been prepping for this. It just, let's go there. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast, uh, conquered Nikeo, whenever you see a Nike symbol think that's what we're called to be, conquered, Nikes. If they sell more, do I get like some money for that? Okay. And also, 
those who conquered the beast and its image were, were, were there, he was seeing. And the number of its name, uh, standing beside the sea, really on the sea, it's epi, it, it, it's on beside uh, that, uh, the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. How interesting. A sea of glass, it's mingled with fire. Chapter 4, verse 6, we saw in the throne room, a, a sea of glass in the throne room uh, where the, the Father sits. Now here it's a sea of glass with fire. I think this is most likely carrying this idea of now the sea of glass, that perfect place of the throne room of heaven. Now judgment is, is, is mingled in that. Judgment is coming out of that. The, uh, put it this way, the throne room perfection is bringing these judgments, not a God that's out of control. It's perfect judgment from the holy place of the throne. And John sees a glass sea mixed with fire, and, and he sees that those who have conquered with harps, by the way, the harps are God's harps. They're owned by God, and, and yet they're given to them. That's pretty cool. Uh, Revelation 5.8 talks about the 24 presbyteros uh, uh, have harps. Uh, 14, chapter 14, verse 2, John hears a voice like uh, uh, the other week, uh, harps harping their harps. And they have this uh, feel of harps going on. Now here in 15.2, harps are in these uniquely noted redeemed one's hands. Let's keep reading. Verse 3, and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, great and amazing. By the way, not like, that's really nice. No, no, great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations, who will not fear, the, who will not fear O Lord, and glorify your name. For you alone are holy, you are set apart. All nations will come and worship you. All nations, that doesn't necessarily mean every person that's ever, ever lived. Depends on how this is understood. All nations will come and worship you. For your righteous acts, very important, have been revealed. So this song of Moses, it refers to coming out of Exodus 15, probably a little bit of Deuteronomy 32 tossed in there as well, but Exodus 15 mainly is a song of the post-400 years of God's people in slavery. And, and remember, uh, uh, God brought uh, 10 blows, 10 plagues, in that period of time, and, and then this, is, it's all after that, and it's after them crossing the Red Sea, and God doing a work, and destroying uh, God's people's enemies, who were given the opportunity to repent, and the most did not. Exodus 15 is a, is a victory song. It's a victory song about God delivering and, and saving his people. Boy, does that fit? God delivering and saving his people because the scene right before is God having saved, delivered people out of. Very cool stuff. The Song of the Lamb, Revelation 5 song, and 
declaration to the lamb of, of all that's going on. There's three uh, kind of uh, moments, little paragraphs there of, of decla- two declarations, one being a, a loud song. And uh, by the way, these, uh, it's referring to great and amazing are your deeds. Uh, very important for this. Just and righteous and true are your ways because you, God, are holy. Your acts are righteous. All of this right now in chapter 15 is extolling God's character in his actions. Why is that important? Because this is preparatory for what's about to happen. It's reminding us of who God is. It's reminding us of what God has done over redemptive history all prior. It's like the second coach looking in their eyes and going, look at me, guys. Don't forget what's happened all the prior from the very beginning of the game. Don't lose sight of who that is because that's the one that's still in charge. And that's the one who is leading this and running this and everything that happened comes out of this one. Verse five. After this I look, I think he's kind of beginning to transition here. After this I looked and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened This is not the tabernacle that that Moses and the crew hauled around. This is is like the original, but yet yet it has that tabernacle feel to it all. Uh, He's referring to a specific place. This is in heaven, and and out of this place was was opened up. And and verse 6, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven blows, the seven plagues. And they're clothed in pure, bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. By the way, that looks like what is described in Revelation 1 of the resurrected, magnified, glorified Jesus Christ. His servants look like him. Boy, there's an application. His servants are to look like him. Verse 7, and one of the four living creatures... Remember the four living creatures around the throne, chapter four, the four living ones there? One of them gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God. Not drops of wrath, not tidbits of wrath, full of God's wrath. We're going all the way back. That's why I said in the very beginning, chapters four and five are foundational for grabbing a hold of the book. One of them gives the seven angels seven golden bowls full of God's wrath. A God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues, the seven blows of the seven angels were finished. The whole smoke thing reminds of Isaiah 6 and Exodus 40 and a number of other places. And, and also, I'll just uh, in Scripture, we see at times when the Shekinah glory of God is present when, when the smoke, when the presence of God is there and God is at work doing something. No one enters. It's, it's this very sacred time. It's like no one enters because God is doing something really, really big. And here's the deal. We don't see it with the seals. We don't see it with the trumpets. But now 
We all of a sudden see it where it's like, know this. You don't go walking into the tabernacle because God's at work. That's what's happening here in heaven. And this takes us into chapter 16. Then I heard. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth. Notice, not dribble out, not like dabble out, not like, you know, uh, toss out, but pour out on the earth the seven bowls that we just saw are full of God's wrath. Seven blows, seven bowl blows are about to be laid out. By the way, God's wrath here, the word is thumos. I mean, doesn't even it just sound like a volcano? Thumos. You know, God's wrath just is about to explode. It's, it's been refrained for a period of time. But, but God in his grace and through all the refraining and the holding back of his, of his full leashing wrath has now come to its last. And thumos, here we go. Verse two, so the first angel went and poured out his bowl, where? On the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people, the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshiped its image. A couple things here. One, it's notice it's targeted punishment. It's targeted. There, there are people on the earth at this time who know Christ. We've seen that over in uh, chapter 12 where God is protecting them. And there are those who know Christ, but this is put on, on, on those who uh, have the mark, have the beast. By the way, that's also really important because there is no neutrality. There are only two teams, those in Christ and those who worship the beast. There are only those two. That's it. And so in it all, there, there are people that uh, um, in it, uh, God is unleashing his wrath. God is putting sores on them. Uh, by the way, these sores, they're harmful, they're, they're painful, they're intense. It, even the words that are used, it carries the kind of ideas that the, the sores are oozing, burning, festering, ulcer sores. They're unsightly and agonizing. They're loathsome and, and malignant. And all you medical folks are like so into this right now. And you honestly, you get it more than some of us. But just grab a hold of what's going on here. This isn't like people are getting pimples on their faces. Okay? These are horrific sores. These are incurable sores. It's, it's, it's not only the language that comes out of the verse, but even later on we see it referenced still going on. These, these are incurable sores. Now consider this. Those who, those who are not in Christ do not have these sores. Well, would you not think that somehow in the pain of it that you would be going and talking to those who don't have sores, why don't you have sores? Right? I don't know how all this works. Are God's people kind of pulled off, protected? There's a little bit of a sense of that in chapter 12. I don't know, but we just know this, that God uh, starts unleashing his wrath. Uh, second angel, verse three. The second angel poured out his bull, where? Into the sea. And it became like the blood of a corpse. And every living thing that 
was in, every living thing died that was in the sea. Are you already getting a bit of a feel of tie back to the plagues of, of Exodus? Uh, certainly so here. But the fouled oceans, we have incurable sores and then the fouled oceans. 70% of our earth is ocean, seas. Is it actual blood? Well, I, I don't think so, but because it, it says it's like blood, but at the same time, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just, gonna talk, I'm just so not into that. It's just like, know this. It's like blood, and God's just like crushed the earth, oceans with blood. Can you imagine what comes out of that? The death of the animals in the sea as a result. The stench. Oh, my word. I remember in San Francisco a long time ago, and you go down to the Fisherman's Wharf. I, I, I appreciate all you people that love that stuff, but I'm just so not into it. It just stinks, man. <laughs> right? I, I don't get the tourism of it. it. Just Google a picture of a fish. It's pretty easy. That was not in my notes. Um, <laughs> By the way, 35 of the 40 largest cities are coastal. Imagine the impact. Imagine the stinking smell of death and the potential of disease. By the way, I think in the text, we clearly get this feel that these are moving fast. This isn't like, I don't know the timing and how from one to the next to the next, but I will tell you the, the movement of the language is such that between the seals and the trumpets, the bulls are moving. It's like, it's at the end. Uh, we don't have a whole nother halftime. This is like the last little bit uh, of the game is going on here, and he's unleashing. And by the way, it's almost like Genesis 121 is completely being reversed. And it's like, you, you, you want a world without me? You got it. I am granting your wish. Fouled oceans. Now, bowl number three, fouled springs. Verse four. Third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. So what do you drink? I mean, the freshwater lakes and rivers and springs and turn into this blood-like, blood thing. Now the oceans and the fresh waters are fouled and polluted. And the truth of the matter is the entire population is threatened. And it's so cool. Right when we're kind of thinking, uh, maybe you are, and, but uh, likely thinking at this point, wow, why all the horror? God's got something to say, verse 5. And John says, and I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, um, just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. Know that. Hear me. Th these are not judgments from hell. These are judgments from the one who sits on the throne in heaven. Okay, hell is not being unleashed. Heaven is being unleashed in all of this. Verse 6, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. Look at this next line. It is what they deserve. The punishment fits the crime. Really, Doug? Does it really fit? To, to, I, to, to me, I, listen, I love people, and I just wish like we could all just like hug, okay? 
And so when I read these kinds of things, there's something, and I hope in you, there's something that makes you uncomfortable. Because if you're like, yeah, God, yeah, you rip it into them. Listen, you got some issues. And I mean that seriously. Where's the mercy? Who, who would want this to come on anyone? And right when we're in that place where all of a sudden sores are just, just pillaging the planet, and the ocean turned to blood, and the rivers turned to like blood, and, and it's all of a sudden you go, this is like whacked out crazy, or maybe this is just a big kind of like cartoon joke. No, all of a sudden an angel steps out, right when God knows we're kind of at that place like, mm, I'm not so sure about this, God steps out and we hear this declaration of, it's like, no, 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 they come from you, and you are just. And actually the problem is not with the punishment too excessive for the crime. You have it exactly right. The problem is, I don't have it right. And I don't see the magnitude of the crime. Verse 8. Bowl 4, scorching, fierce sun. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun. And it was allowed to scorch people with fire. And they were scorched by the fierce heat. And they cursed the name of God. By the way, I love this next little statement. Who had power over these plagues. He's the one bringing this. Verse 11, and, and the, I'm sorry, verse, uh, yeah, verse 9 who has power over the plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. You know, there's a part of you right now that's going like, well, duh, he's frying them to smithereens. No, no, but hold on a second. God has been so patient for the entire redemptive history, holding back his wrath year after year, decade after decade, century after century, millennia after millennia. God has been holding back his wrath in hopes that more would come into uh, knowing him and into experiencing his mercy. And, and it's like now at the very end of the game, he is unleashing his wrath out here. And, and it's like, this is so unfair. No, it's not. It's perfectly right. And he is the one who controls it all. He created it all. And he's like, listen, my held back wrath, all of this should have happened on day one in Genesis 3. And the truth of the matter is everyone in this room should, should be receiving all of this wrath. Oh, and plus more. That's how significant our crime is before a holy creator. Here now they're living with these malignant sores and now the scorching heat. I mean, the, the thirst and the fires. We got fires all out on the West Coast, but like that ain't nothing. Burning up crops and vegetation. By the way, also uh, some have noted, uh, think of this, not only is it bringing that, but, but now we're talking real global warming, okay? And think of what takes place with the polar ice caps going seriously with this now, okay? I'm actually believing this part of it. And in it here, it's completely unleashing heat out. And in fact, scientists have said that if all of the polar ice caps melted, just, just the polar ice caps melted, the ocean would rise 200 feet. Can you imagine what that does just to the land? Is the water 200 feet up? Oh, by the way, that, that's just the polar ice caps. Then let's bring in the mountains of it. 
By the way, uh, for, hold for a moment because Mount Ararat, uh, the snow coming off of that's on that will, will be melted and the flood coming down, that's going to impact the Euphrates. We'll get there in just a second. And floods are happening everywhere. Isn't that interesting? Heat and floods. Those are like the opposites of each other. And one more time, God is like, you know what, I've, I've been gracious and I've been merciful and, and it's time for the end. And by the way, in this, note that they know who's bringing this. By the way, it's like the, bee, the sea beast and the land beast are irrelevant now. Come on, boys, stand up and do something about this. Uh, can't do this one. And here God is the one bringing and everybody knows and they curse God's name. There's part of this, again, where you can understand where it's like, because God is unleashing on them. He's making massive blows on them. Of course they would be angry. Listen, but, but at what point in time is the mass murderer put in jail going to come to a place where it's like the punishment is finally getting through to me? I mean, we're that way as a society. The, the punishment needs to fit the crime. And if the crime is again and again, harsher punishment. Why? Because we want them to see what's right. And even in these, God is unleashing himself, if you will, really ultimately in hopes that people would repent. I mean, that's what happened. The prodigal son life got so hard that he saw, if you will, the father way better with the Father. And by the way, if they still have sores and those other people who are in Christ don't have sores, isn't that getting through to them? Keep going, doesn't stop. Bowl number five, kingdom darkness. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness now, there, there's debates about, so is it darkness just on the throne? Is it just on the city where the beast has his throne? Is it, oh, so tiresome sometimes. Um, it's just dark, <laughs> okay? And, and uh, um, yeah, sorry, I'm tired of some commentary reading. Um, and it was plunged into darkness, and people gnawed their tongues in anguish. And cursed the God of heaven for their pains and sores. See, this sore still, I think, is what this is referring to, are still coming through. And they did not repent of their deeds. It's kind of like people are digging in harder and harder and harder. And the lights go out. Can you imagine the impact of that? Engulfed in darkness, Satan is darkness. Second Peter chapter two verse four says, "Hell is gloomy darkness." Ephesians five eleven, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. Ephesians six twelve, we wrestle against flesh and blood and rulers and authorities and cosmic powers of this present darkness. And God's like, you want darkness? You got it. I've been holding it back, but now you have it. By the way, at the cross, our Savior experienced scorching sores. I'm not trying to get too uh, 
um, imagery playing here, but there's a truth in it that uh, our Savior experienced sores. His blood was poured out. Thirst, he was cursed at. Father's wrath was poured out on him. And it went dark. By the way, friends, all that we're reading here, we so do not get the wrath poured out on the Son on the cross. We think it's like God is like, oh, these people just so irritate me. Okay, you take it. Way to go, second coach. I'll give you a sunburn. That is so not. All of this kind of wrath was poured out on the Son on the cross. This is the wrath that he was taken. We do not see the crime of our sin big enough. And he took it all. And so any person that is in Christ and and has received the mercy of the Savior, the paid price, is the one who took of everything we're reading, all the seals, all the trumpets, all the bulls, all that kind of wrath. He's taken in your and my place. Praise God, right? We need to see him bigger. We need to see him bigger. By the way, the crime on the cross and all the wrath poured out on the son and the father. Maybe now we get it more. And by the way, it was a full-fitting punishment. All the horror he received. It fit the crime of our sin, not his. Amazing. Bull number six. Verse 12. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates. Remember, everything was just hot and melting, and, and its water was dried up. Well, why would that be a big deal? Because it was just flooded. And so now it's dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, there the boys are, three unclean spirits like frogs, not frogs, like frogs. Frogs, by the way, back in that, in that day were viewed as, uh, as very unclean. Um, people did not like frogs. Verse 14, and it even tells us, for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world. So uh, the dragon through the beast and the false prophet are performing signs and going to the, to the kings of the world and letting them know everything that's, or, or working them over, I should say, and, and deceiving them. And then it says, why? To assemble them for battle on the great day of, of God the Almighty. This is an assembling work that's happening. There's really no plague Blow. It's an assembling blow. Why is that a blow? God's gathering them all together to go to war with them. And they, on their own, are gathering together to go to war with God. Verse 15, this, the smallest of all the parenthetic, uh, <laughs> parenthetic comments, just like the other ones right before the seventh bowls, or seventh seal, seventh trumpet. There's been these statements. Now we have a mini one. Verse 15. I think this is coming from uh, Jesus. Uh, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen unexposed. 
Verse 16, I'm just going to go on. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. If you read some commentaries, you'll see there's discussion, Armageddon, and there's, you know, and where is this? But, but that Megiddo doesn't have hills and mountains and all this kind of talk about this. I'm just going to say this. God's brain is pe- all the people on the earth together, and he's going to have a one-up. Man to man, face to face, let's go at it. You want to go to war with me? Game on. Here we go. And then the seventh bowl. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air. The loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying what? It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake. Kind of sounds a lot like the cross. And so great was that earthquake, the great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. I'm just going to say in this, I do think that uh, the great city is referencing Jerusalem here. The way it's laid out, some think it's Babylon, the city of Babylon, but the way the flow of the sentence, it kind of separates that from Babylon the Great. Two referencing points. Verse 20, and every island fled away, no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, the term that's used there is referring to the, 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 uh, the weight of something that an average, uh, a healthy man could carry. And generally that was viewed anywhere from like 90 to 125 pounds. So it's hailstones that big. Do you realize the largest hailstones ever recorded are two pounds? Man, these are big. <laughs> that was theologically deep, wasn't it? These are big. The great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. Well, I need to finish here. And I want to finish grabbing those last two words. So severe. I think the New International says, so terrible. The New King James Version says, exceedingly great. I, I like the so severe the best. So severe. Listen, you, you, you cannot read this and not feel like, whoa, this is severe. True? And as you can tell, I don't think that these are just like goofy, illustrative stories. Friends, we don't see the severity of our crime. And I'm talking about the crime of sin. This is just too severe, it's too harsh. I mean, seriously, God, why so severe? Because sin is that severe. That's why. The fact is that the poured out wrath of God in Revelation 16 perfectly fits the crime. No, it doesn't. Maybe it doesn't seem like it to you and I, but it does to the God who sits on the throne. It's perfect match. We see sin like, as I mentioned earlier, like a traffic ticket. Oops, God, I was speeding. 
Oops, I parked in the wrong place. Oops, I didn't have my lights on. Oops, I was driving under the influence. Oops, God, my bad. But hey, thanks for covering my traffic ticket. Really appreciate that. You know, you took that and you tore it out and and you threw it as far as the east is from the west. You're the man. And God's like, you so don't see it, do you? And my response is, yeah, I really don't think I do. By the way, the reason I'm going where I'm going is because this book is ultimately directed to people in seven local churches. This book isn't ultimately directed at people without Christ. But I want for you to know this. If, if you're someone who's here today and, and you're not sure if you're in relationship with Christ or even know what that means about that or what, what does it mean for a person to, to, to be forgiven of their sin, I want for you to know this. Your sin situation is severe. You are in severe trouble, but know this. He has mercy that is that severe to cover it. I don't want to end this on the severity of the crushing. I want to end this on the severity of his mercy. And if you don't have Christ, oh, you, you, you need him because you're in trouble. I just say that out of love. And we would love to help you. I'm just so not into the quick, easy, come to Jesus moments. Because sin is severe. And coming to Christ needs to be severe. And so the scripture calls you, come to Christ. He has severe mercy. Small sin carries an idea of small wrath. And small wrath needs a small pardon. But Jesus didn't die for small sin and small wrath. He didn't die a small death. He died a severe death for severe sin that deserves severe wrath that his severe death pardoning work could be applied to trump the severe sin problem. And those of us who know Christ as our Savior, we have been mercied severely so. And this is a call to remember that. Because even this day, our sins are not little traffic tickets. They are severely offensive to our Savior. And it's time to start seeing them severe. See the severity of sin. But oh please... See the absolute out of proportion mercy of Christ. Have the worship team come up and get ready for a final song here. And I, I just want to make this closing plea to us as a church family. Oh, how wonderful it would be if this was a church that had the balance. Had the balance of seeing severity of sin and had the balance with it of being a place of severe mercy with one another. 
That, that, that we would see sin as important and we would see that as helping one another. And it's a big deal to the Lord. But, but we're, we want to be a place of severe mercy, right? Because he's a God of severe mercy made available. And we need to be people and we need to have marriages and we need to have parents and we need to have kids that not only see sin serious but see mercy more serious, if you will. Perfect balance of that. We need to be that as a people here in this church. People who have been around for a long time need, need, to see the, 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 need to show the severe mercy to those who are brand new. And for those who are brand new, just understand we're just a church of seven and a half years old. You don't expect a whole lot out of a seven and a half year old, do you? We need your mercy. I need your mercy. You need to have severe mercy with your, your elders and your pastors here. We need to have severe mercy with you, right? Right? Let's leave awed by the magnitude of the mercy made available. But know this. time is coming when the full wrath of God will be fully poured out. And this is serious stuff. So let's have as our closing prayer, let's sing together.